Great. Wow. It's good to be here. Amen. Amen. Great. If you've got a Bible, could you grab uh, your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 28. Last time I spoke a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, making the point that um, when you live in this world, uh, change is inevitable, right? I don't know if you remember that. I was making that point anyway, that that change is inevitable. Change is in everything, political change, life change, your health will change, your friendships will change, your, just every element of your life changes. And I was making the point that in a, in a world that's always changing, learning to remain and live in the constant, glorious love of our Father is huge. But ironically, although I hope what I said was true, is that change kind of out there in the world is absolutely here to stay, The great irony is this, is that the one place that every single human deeply wants change in here is actually the one place that change can be absent. Not ironic that I was saying, oh, change, we hate change, it's always thrust upon us, change, change, change. Change, change, change. What do we do in change? And how, how do we survive this change? And that's true. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about this week is that although change out there is genuinely inevitable, say inevitable, it is. The great ir- irony is that the one place we really want change in our souls, in our characters, in how we respond when our wife does certain things a certain way, or our children respond a certain way, or how the preacher, whatever. As we walk through our life, we yearn for change in here. And yet, ironically, if we're honest, all of us, even if we feel like, yeah, we're always changing for the better. That's my middle name. I am Tom, change for the better sure. Even if you would be so bold as to say that, it is true, is it not, that actually... All the reason you're here today, whether you realize it or not, at your deepest being, whether you know Christ or whether you don't know Christ, is because change is the great thing that every human in this world desperately craves. That's what the whole of marketing is based on. And so we kind of go, yeah, yeah, I'll change this and change that. I still don't really feel somehow like I'm making traction, but I'll still keep doing that. And I believe the Lord today, with a great grin on his face, is inviting us into one of the most overlooked, easily assumed things that is the great key that Jesus himself gave to his 11 disciples about how we actually genuinely can change in here. It's called discipleship. It's called discipleship. And even as I'm saying that, I promise you, some of you are switching off. I can see it on your faces. You're going, what? You, you got me all stirred up, Tom. I was all excited about how I can change. And then you've just said the D word. And that proves the point. In a bigger church, one of the biggest challenges is small change. 
I like that. I made that up myself. <laughs> I'm quite a spontaneous guy if you look at my notes. But I actually wrote that bit down. She's like, oh, God's giving me a specific phrase. In a bigger church, one of the biggest challenges is small change. There's so many benefits to bigger church, and I love it. I love the event. But one of the biggest challenges is you can get to the end of your life when the Lord stops your heart, stops your lungs, and you finally meet him. And there is one number in the Bible that I believe we are called to think about. One number. Not your income. Not your IQ. How many disciples have you made? I'll prove it. Let's look with me. Verse 16 in Matthew 28. Chapter 28, verse 16. And then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, Galilee, to the mountain, can be American, Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus has told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, we just lift our hearts to you in the next half an hour. We pray for change. We really, really, really want change. We thank you that we are your beloved children. How amazing and crazy is that? But we know that your love is meant to change us so that we then want to see others change. We get changed through your love and therefore we almost get wholly addicted to being involved in the mess of other people's lives, the glorious mess. Come and woo us, come and convince us. Let the hard hearts this morning soften in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I want to kind of go to war on this presumption or over-familiarity with the idea of discipleship. What Jesus just said here is the great crescendo, really, of his teaching. He's saying here that the great key for you to have a fruitful life is about intentionally partnering with God, life upon life, in the highs and in the lows, and partnering with him, the great discipler, as we play our vital role in seeing others change. We receive discipleship and we partner with God in discipling. And in this passage, I think Jesus touches upon three obstacles that we often unconsciously allow to stop us engaging and gives us, therefore, correspondingly three keys to positively move forward. Let's just briefly look at those three. Three keys that he gives us here from the passage. First of all, discipleship really does make the difference. It really makes the difference. Now, what I'm trying to, first of all, do, as I say this, is simply convince your minds that this, this simple act, I mean, you can define discipleship in lots of different ways, but I'm sure you basically understand it. It means 
partnering with Jesus, he's the great discipler, amen? He's the changer. He's the one. He's always the one, ultimately, that changes any human. We get that. That's a foundation. But what I'm talking about here is our glorious family involvement with our big brother, Jesus. Now, that's actually, you can call him that. Romans says he is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn. So we come into his family. He's our big brother, and he's the one that loves to change people in Tulare and people in Sacramento and people in Visalia. Hallelujah. He is about change. So this is the deal. He's going to change them one way or another. But we get to partner with him. But the first thing that you have to get into your mind and your soul is that discipleship, us actually partnering with him in getting involved with people's lives as a brother or a sister in Christ, even if they don't know Christ, but perhaps they're sheep that don't know their sheep yet. That's great joy, discipling those and they don't even know they're being discipled. I love that. Sneaky. I love it. Listen, it makes the difference. And when you have a crowd, you can think we do great stuff. We do great stuff. And we miss the ground war. Yeah? We have amazing air war of worship and, and, and things that inspire up here. But what I want to appeal to you is that Jesus here is saying something to these guys in a context of doubt. Isn't that fascinating? They are doubting like many of us here today. Look, it says... It says, when they saw him, this is the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in the previous few verses, it's talked about, (laughs) it says that Jesus came back from the dead. It says, dead people came out of the tombs in Jerusalem. There was an earthquake. In fact, there's been two earthquakes now. It says that these extraordinary things have happened. Jesus is now with them, physically resurrected from the dead. And some are worshipping and yet some are doubting. Isn't that wonderful? I find that spellbindingly wonderful. Glorious. Some, it doesn't say who, it's so kind. It doesn't say who. Notice it's 11 disciples. I I, I love that kind of limping feel, you know? It was 12. It's down to 11. (laughs) They're taking some shots. And even this limping 11, this limping 11. I mean, do, do you understand this? This is so incredible, the details that Jesus includes here. He has literally come back from the dead. There have been physical earthquakes. Dead people have come out of the grave. Jesus is turning on the fireworks for these 11, okay? He's doing everything to say to them, I'm with you. What else can I do to help you be encouraged? He comes back from the dead and some doubt. I love that. I love that verse. It's deliberately kind. Doubt will always be a part of our lives. Hallelujah. You might get vaguely inspired in the next 30 minutes and go out and for a bit. But yeah, I'm sure about this. But doubt will be crouching at your door until the day you die. And that's okay. It's okay to see it. It's not okay to live in it. You see it and you go, thank you. that There's no condemnation. Now I move away from it. I want you to know that many of you have missed this. You have missed through hurt, through pride, through whatever reason, the joy of both pouring your life with Big Brother Jesus 
into the lives of many people and you have missed the joy of opening your life vulnerably, trustingly, and letting people in. And today's the day of change. Hallelujah. I, I celebrate hearing about packs being trained tonight. <sighs> I love it. You know, some of us in life are more like eventsy people, yeah? Some of us just like the, the event. And events are great. You know, you think about Saul. He had a pretty big event in his life. Clippity-clop, clippity-clop on his horse. And then, boom, the resurrected Jesus appears to him. That's quite a Sunday morning. Okay? <laughs> That's an event, capital E. But what's glorious is it then says this, bl- listen, he's blind. He's blind. Implication is he's now vulnerable. Do you see? He's led. I love you, Jesus. You're amazing, but I'm so weak now. This is the beginning of my Christian life. I can't even see. And it says he goes to a room. He's led to a room where for several days he just sits. And then an unknown man, never heard of again, called Ananias, go to one of the greatest apostles that will ever live and help him. Speak truth into his life. Give him his great commission specifically. And Ananias comes, an unknown man. Really? I've got to go to Saul? You can do it. Full of doubt. Do you see? Events and the ongoing process. The process is what I'm getting, trying to get to here. Listen, the ironic thing is I was an atheist, walked into this church 20 years ago in England, angry atheist, I get knocked off my horse. Next two years, by the grace of God, a church with many imperfections, as all churches have, but one of the strengths was older men who came by my side. There was a head teacher, a principal. Okay, so picture the scene. I've got dreadlocks and nose ring. I've smoked a lot of pot in my life. I'm a hippie, all right? Some of you are like, what the heck? I'm afraid it's true. I thought I was cool. I wasn't, but I thought I was. And <laughs> I become a Christian, and I get into this small group thing. And in that small group, you've got an architect, you've got a surgeon, you've got a principal, and me! Hey, dude. <laughs> now, listen. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And those older men knew it. I was very proud, but in the grace and the kindness of God, several men over those years, they would come to where I lived, into my stinky bedroom, and they would teach me how to open the Bible, and they would listen to my woes. They had these massively busy jobs, and there's me, a student, talking about my six hours a week of lectures. (sighs) The pressure. Oh, the pressure. And they would come in, and they, they changed my life. Men that never preached, never led big things in many ways in the church, and they quietly changed my life. And they weren't perfect. They really weren't. Do you understand? And I owe them so much. And... This is the amazing thing was, this happened for the first two years, and then Josie and I were asked to spend just one year, just stay for one more year and do an internship with the university students. 
And we're like, okay, well, we're going to go off and leave just Canterbury. We'll just leave. But we'll just give one more year. And so we thought we'd work with the university students. And there was a grand total of six. Two guys, four girls. We start the university work. And I spent all week planning the Sunday night event. I'm just like, we've got to get smoke machines. Pa what PowerPoint should we use? What font? You know, what venue? And I remember Josie being like, you're an idiot. <laughs> she was just, what about the rest of the week? And Josie quietly started meeting with those four girls and just saying, should we go for a coffee? Let me just, let me just help you with your journey with Jesus. Some were believers, some were strong believers, some were unbelievers. It was all a mix, as it always is, gloriously. And as she did that, it grew and grew and grew and grew. And I was watching, thinking, oh, I should probably do that as well. What about the event, though? I like the shiny event. And it grew from 6 to 30, first year, and then from 30 to 80. You have to remember, in England, that's basically revival. <laughs> You're like, right. But here was the deal. It was about discipleship. If you disciple, if you pour your life, if you see a vision, when you are having a moment, either organized or organic, both are needed, with either one-on-one -on -one or a small intimate group. Jesus had his 70, he had his big thing, he had the 12, and he had his three. We often miss the three. We often miss the Peter, James, and John dimension. And it doesn't have to be super informal, but as long as it has an intentionality to it. God, we're expecting you to come. What is the Lord saying, and what are you doing about it? That's it. That's all you need to ever ask. You can write that down. What is the Lord saying, and what are you doing? And so it's not about you. It's about Him. Let me ask you that. Why is He saying that? How can I help you work out what you could do as a next step? What is He saying, and what are you doing? And, and, and what, what we found happening was that life upon life upon life begets life. They then become those who see a vision. And what happens is, in many ways, your big events take care of themselves. I would be meeting with these younger guys, and they would be apathetic at first. I remember meeting with the guy who now leads City Church. I remember. He'll probably listen to this. Hello, Martin. I remember him. First ever time I met with him, he was just some uh, first-year student struggling with smoking and drinking and girls. And uh, I met with him in this coffee shop, and I remember thinking, well, I'll give him half an hour. Say the obvious things. He'll never change. Hi, Martin. You shouldn't do those things. Read your Bible. Da -la -la -la. And he did. <laughs> and we met again. And, and then I said some more things. And he changed a bit more. And a bit more. And a bit more. And 12 years later, God has now called him to take over leading the eldership, which I for a season had the joy of leading. And every time I am, apart from his wife, I think I'm Martin's biggest fan. I love Martin. I am so deeply, gloriously proud of him. And he is so strong in so many areas. But I've also got this little vision in my head of that coffee shop 12 years ago. And he was just there like, don't know what I'm doing. And he didn't know what he was doing. And you know, if I hadn't given myself to him, I believe God would have found someone else. Jesus, I can raise up from these stones, sons of Abraham. So it's not like God really, you know, he's panicking if you're not going to get on board with this. He can raise up rocks who will give themselves to it. But what I'm saying first of all is, are you convinced 
Are you convinced in your heart? I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this. I think he says it a bit better than me. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Wow! What he's talking about is the fact in the new heavens and the new earth, every believer by grace has been promised a new body and that we will be transformed beyond even comprehension. And if we could see what destiny awaits for us, the fact that we can partner with Jesus as he changes people. I mean, come on, how incredible is that? And this means no matter how dull your life is, you are giving yourself with your children. With your, if you don't have children, if you're blessed with singleness or blessed with being a parent, if you've got employees or you are an employee, do you see we have this extraordinary vision from the scriptures of, of not just attending an event, but giving ourselves in faith every day, saying, Lord, who can I pour my life into? And the promise of God is, as we serve, we are blessed. Some of you have become stagnant lakes, and I love you, but I know that for a fact. We, we, just, we can stagnate, and I just need a bit more new knowledge, just to something else. Don't buy that lie. This is practical. This is like, you know, it's on a mission together. There's something about it. Trav was burning with passion in Sacramento this week. It was glorious, saying, I love friendship. Friendship's great. But when you get friendship and mission together, boom! Friendship on fire. Do you understand? How can we meet and hang out great? Yeah, yeah. But how can we together grow and become more like Jesus who's drawing us to this eternal place where we really will share the new heavens and the new earth? He's preparing us for glory. Come on. Hallelujah. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is just just discipleship. So I want number one, you to be convinced. Number two, number one, discipleship makes the difference. Number two, discipleship is costly. Discipleship is costly, and can I, can I be a bit naughty? You have an amazing, you're living in an amazing country, in an amazing state, at an amazing time of history, where there is a lot of blessing, physical blessing, and I am enjoying it. I'm very pleased that God's called us here. Don't mishear me. However, <laughs> the comfort lie is rampant. So we have to be very, very deliberate. The Bible says the church is a family. Hallelujah. It also says we're an army. These are the two biggest metaphors. And if you just stay in family zone, well, you miss an awful lot. If you also combine that with the army metaphor that's throughout scriptures, that you will take a kicking if you don't stand and fight you will. We have a real enemy. Satan is absolutely real. He is defeated. He is on the way out, but he's still real. So we must approach every day saying, well, this is the great, Jesus says, go and make disciples. It's like, is it the most important thing? Well, it's certainly right up there. So you don't have to be a genius to realize that his enemy is going to be working against that. Sin separates. It's the first thing that happened. 
when Adam and Eve fell, sin separates them and God and each other. That's what sin does. Think about that. So therefore, when Jesus says, give yourself to discipleship, what he's saying is, because discipleship is the restoring first of your relationship with your new king, and then in the family that you're called to live in. Sin separates, Jesus unites. The great summary in Ephesians of what everything is heading towards is that Christ is uniting everything. One new man. Do you understand? It's not a small issue when we say the meet and greet. You may not like it. I don't always like it, but it is a prophetic stepping into a little, you know, training wheels. <laughs> we won't be like meeting and greeting in heaven, in the new heavens. Oh, I've got to talk to someone new. You will, there'll be no shame. There'll be no selfishness. There'll just be joy of his family together. But there is a cost at this moment. There's a cost. Now, I say that because if we think that the cost, therefore, um, when we feel the cost. So, so there's a cost, for example, if you, if you want to disciple someone, yeah, you want to pour your life into someone, there's a cost. There's also a cost if you actually want to be discipled. It's always costly. So for, if you want to say, yeah, Tom, I, I feel like, you know, I want to go and make disciples. I want to do that. All of these words, there's cost words. Go. Oh, I want to stay. I'll, it's, no, no. Either literally or metaphorically, you're a going people. That is our call. You are, as I said, Aslan's on the move. We are going with our great king. He's going out of here with you. That's costly. Make disciples. It's intentional. Make disciples, not just listeners of the word, people who are familiar with the gospel. Well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm an American, right? No. No. It's a bit different. You may be familiar. He says here, teaching them to observe. Wow. Jesus brings grace. The grace, though, empowers you to live that life. It doesn't mean you can have a sloppy life. Grace teaches us to say no. It teaches us, it empowers us to actually be supernaturally different. Hallelujah. It isn't just like, well, grace means that I can just... See, one of the biggest lies that drives me up the pole at the moment is people are addicted to confession. And they think confession means that it's all okay. Oh, my word. That's just being... A Pharisee. Jesus says, avoid people who say one thing and don't live it out. So if you say, don't look at me, I'm just a mess, and that's kind of my way out, because I feel, oh, I feel the pressure's off now. No! No! Grace teaches us to live differently. Do you see? That is a massive, subtle lie that's abounding. It's cool for, to confess. And confession's important. I confess daily, hourly sometimes. But it, do you understand what I'm saying? It's cathartic to confess. It feels a relief. Oh, I went for a coffee and I just got it off my chest. Boom, straight back into it. I love you, but that is rubbish. That's not okay. Rightly, Trav was saying, we fear the Lord as well as love the Lord. It's always both. And for some of you, you've thought, I'm really transparent, I'm really honest. Brilliant. Now changed by the grace of God. And the way that you will change is through being partly, but a huge part of this is giving your life 
to both pouring into others and receiving. It's the most amazing thing. I think I often change more when I'm officially discipling someone else than when I'm being discipled. You ever had that experience? I'm officially going to invest in you for a season and you can, you can learn from my ways. And I suddenly think, oh my gosh, I really have got to, you know, get on with this stuff. I've got to actually live this life. And that's actually a very healthy revelation because Jesus says what's in dark will be brought to light. So privacy is a lie. There's no such thing as privacy. You're never alone. So when you deliberately go, well, how can I live in the good of that? I know. If I, I have such a heart for this girl, I just want to help her in some small way grow in her faith or grow towards faith. What actually happens is, as they then look at your life, you're kind of physically doing something to remind you that God's looking at your life. It's a wonderful gift, but you feel that pressure. There is a cost to it. There is a cost to it. And actually, this is the other thing. If you know Jesus today, you are hardwired to actually want cost. Isn't that fascinating? Can't you th- the world says, just don't name the cost. Yeah? Just make it all kind of, everything's fine. That, as a Christian, something extraordinary has happened in your heart, in your heart where you actually want to know the reality and you want to give, don't you want to give your life for something? Don't you want to do that? You do right? You don't want a comfortable life. Superficiality is the biggest challenge to the church in the West right now. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And the Lord is saying, I love you and it will be costly. But finally, we want to have some time for some prayer every week. So I want to keep the pace up. Finally, discipleship is not just costly. And this is my favorite point, undiscipleship or non-discipleship is way worse. Do you get it? There's a great book um, by a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Amazing guy who lived around the Second World War, German uh, theologian. And he wrote this amazing book called The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, he really went for the jugular, you know? Just at Christians who were like, well, I'm a fair-weather Christian, and if there's any cost, I'm going to shrink back. And it's a very challenging book and a wonderful book. But a great, a great man called Dallas Willard from California, he, um, he wrote a brilliant book, and he made a very profound comment. He said that Dietrich Bonhoeffer absolutely spoke truth. But actually, the Christian life is anything but a life of cost. Cost is involved. I've already said that. But what he's saying is the cost that we must pay is so minuscule compared with what you receive. It is so laughably small compared with the the treasures and the glorious riches that that tiny little cost, oh, I better get up. Just get, boom! Scripture comes alive. And you're like, if I hadn't done that, I would have been a grumpy dad. I would have been a stressed teacher. And I, I spent 10 minutes actually get, trying to get this into me. Do you understand? The cost of undiscipleship. There's a great illustration um, with the story of the rich young ruler. And Jesus says, come with me. One thing you've got to do is just get rid of your cash, all right? Because for you, it's a stumbling block. 
and he, and he doesn't do it. He walks away rich and yet desperately poor. I mean, he doesn't seem to get forgiveness. He doesn't seem to enjoy peace that comes, forgiveness, adoption, inclusion, filled with the Holy Spirit, assurance about the resurrection, confidence about the new heaven and the new earth, intimacy with the greatest friend you could ever possibly have. Do you see? And that's what people do every single day. And let's be honest, we can do it too. You see, the cost of non-discipleship is infinitely greater because the reality is we are living at this moment in enemy-occupied territory. Jesus is the prince of this world, hallelujah. But the moment there is a strong adversary, he's called the accuser. Remember that. He will accuse you night and day. Now, why is that important? That means this. If you are not packing up, you are not forming intentional connections with people, this is what will happen, who will speak truth over you, who will SMS you after a meeting or in the morning and say, just to say, brother, this is what will happen. Your passion for Jesus will do this. It will, because you are hardwired. You are designed to be in a family. You're not designed to be some child on their own trying really hard to make it through this world. You are designed to both receive encouragement and challenge in equal measure and then to pass it on. And as we go out in a few moments' time, as we spread out into Tulare, as we push north into Sacramento, as we get ready over the next decade, two decades, to see what the Lord will do and multiply the goodness of here, we have to realize that we are pushing into enemy territory. And our God says, please don't despise the, pr- the process and the method that I've given you. It's glorious. It's one thing for me to say to my kids individually, this is how you do this. This is how you load the dishwasher. This is how you do the litter. It's another thing when I say, hey, Daisy, Daisy, could you, just, could you just let Lily know how to do that? That maths that, remember, we worked through a year ago. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. She's struggling with that now. Yeah, Dad, I'd love to do that. To see them, yes, growing in maths, but to see them coming closer and to see truth coming and joy coming. Oh, my word, there's something so, so wonderful. You see... I would say discipleship, there's a cost, but discipleship's aim in many ways is to enable each of us through speaking words and living lives which remind each other, above all else, I would say, of the love and the mercy and the kindness of our God. I think that is absolutely orthodox Christianity. You think about this, when you look at how Paul discipled whole peoples. Paul, he, even with churches that were totally and utterly in disarray, like he comes, yes, with firm words, but the fatherliness, the mercy, he comes and speaks truths over each of us that will never change. Even if your behavior is terrible, you still are beloved. You will never outrun my God. You are adopted. You are chosen before the foundations of the earth. And he's writing these truths to churches that are totally and utterly mucked up. Do you see, what I'm trying to say is, is that if we don't give ourselves to discipling one another, then the cost is so much greater because we slip away. God becomes just, well, I, I fear him only. I, I, you know, he's there, he's holy. He g- gives me lots of challenge. 
but is he really kind? And at that moment, the enemy rejoices. And many of you have got to that place. And the great news is today, quickly, gloriously, like a prodigal daughter or a prodigal son running into the embrace, he stands and says, come. He doesn't say, well, (sighs) these last few years, what you've been doing? He tears up, I would imagine, and says, come. Discipleship at its purest, it involves challenge. Of course it does. But look at, look at Jesus, even here with these 11 wallies who are doubting. He doesn't go, I don't believe this. He just says, anyway, let your doubt be there. Let me give you the gold to go forth. Do you see? He's kind. He's really, really kind. One of the most wonderful experiences about coming to this church was being kissed by Larry Schmidt. Larry, stand up, just quickly. We've got only five minutes, two minutes. Does everyone know Larry? Yeah, you know Larry. Larry, you did something I've never had done before. A cowboy-esque man with a very cool mustache. First time, <laughs> first time I ever met him, he doesn't just come to me and shake my hand or even embrace me. But as I am locked in with nowhere to run, <laughs> the lips go into action. And this amazing kiss comes on my cheek. Do you know, Paul says in Romans, he commands. In Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians, Peter picks it up in 1 Peter, greet each other with a holy, say it. Hallelujah! (laughs) Now listen, I will never forget, and this is deadly serious, I never, I will never forget that moment. And there is something, Paul is discipling many churches. He's, he's instilling a culture. Do you see that? And it's not just like, oh, that was a cultural thing. We don't do that now. Poppycock. That's not true. It's not true. I think there is a timelessness. Do you understand about that intimacy? He's saying to churches that are a nightmare and the bane of his life in many ways and are mucked up, he's saying to them, Yeah, I know that, but when we get to heaven, friends, oh, I'm going to love you, Corinthians, you crazy lot. You're not going to be a bane. Jesus died for you. He adores you. He never falters in his love. And so let's build a culture that in faith, in faith, says he is smiling over us, as we were singing earlier. Faith is rising. Why? Because we're believing that he's smiling over us. That's a huge difference. Faith is rising because he's tolerating me. No, he's smiling over you. Hallelujah. Oh my word, the gospel's so good. The gospel is so, so good. It's so good. Even when he, he, he comes with harsh words, they're out of love. Even then, don't be like me. I got stuck in challenge mode. Anyway, if you get where all I ever saw was challenge. Oh, challenge. challenge is in the Bible, but the big point is it's good news. Hallelujah. It, isn't it? It's so good. Listen, I would say don't disciple people into your joylessness. <laughs> don't do it. I know, I know there's serious things. I'm not making light of this, but there were really serious things when these guys wrote these letters. They really were. They were dying. 
for their faith. And yet they said, with joy inexpressible. I want that. For the joy set before him, Jesus died. He's joyful. And I had a vision when I, a few months ago about this church. I saw it so clearly about God releasing extraordinary joy. Real joy that you can't work up. That's not because you're an extrovert. That's not because you had a great week. Joy amidst pain. He prepares a feast for me. Oh, when? In the midst of my enemies. What? I don't want to eat when there's weird enemies around me. I want to sort out the enemies. No, no, no. That's your life, my friend. I'm going to give you great food in the midst of your enemies. And listen, when you meet, oh, I know there's going to be an army of men and women released today. I can sense it. You're getting it. We are not ever called to build a church. Do you know that? That's Jesus' job. We make disciples. Hallelujah. We go out today. In a moment we go, Lord, in the petrol station, in the supermarket, or with Christian brothers and sisters I know. Some of you, are, this is your first Sunday here, and there's going to be many people here who want to find you and love you and think, you're so precious to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing, amazing privilege we get. Let's stand to our feet. Let's stand to our feet. Let's, let's present ourselves, Trevor. Sorry, mate, you've got to get your guitar. We love you, Trevor. Isn't he great? And the team, can we thank the team? My word. This is not rocket science, okay? Can I have a hallelujah? It is really simple. That's why I've stayed away from specific how-tos. Because you're all different. Different life stages. Some of you are crazy busy mums. And the main thing is disciple your children. I'm not putting a weight on you to say, there's loads of other things. This is not about projects. This is about people. Yeah? Let's, re- let's open our hands. The Lord's coming. He's coming. Lord, every one of us, I, I just pray first for any here who would say, I am not a disciple, but I want in. Right now, you can just say quickly, I want to be discipled by you, Jesus. I want to become a Christian. I want to follow you. I want to run. Like you said, Tom, you were an atheist. I think that's me. I want to come right today. And if that's you, just put your hands up as high as you can reach. I want to pray a special prayer of blessing. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Hallelujah. Thank you, brother. We pray with one heart. For any here, first of all, who are right at the beginning of that journey, you've been, you're the hound of heaven. You've been after them since you, before you made Jupiter. But Lord, I pray today that you would just catch them up in the joy of knowing Jesus. All I once held dear, Lord, is nothing compared with knowing Jesus. I pray for any here today who, as they are standing in your presence, they will turn away from a life of sin. That just means living for yourself, living without any reference to King Jesus. And even in this moment, they'll just say, Lord, turn me to you. Turn me to the kind, forgiving God. Let your death on the cross be my death, so that as you are raised to life, I'm now raised with you. If that is you, come forward at the end. Tell us who you are. We want to help you and know you. But for all of us today, we just stand here. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength. Let's worship him. As we worship, he releases such wonderful things. I just set our eyes on Jesus. I didn't know how we were going to respond, but I've just, he's the discipler. 
He wants to disciple you before you even think about anyone else. So just receive from him right now in faith. Don't look at me. Let your eyes be on the king. He's big. He's large and in charge. And he is drawing us into a great adventure this week, which no one else may ever know about. But that private, private pursuit of him is so glorious. Drink him in. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus.